Hello, Kachim Bonats. I'm so excited to bring you this latest installment in me thinking through Latinidad and race, this time by bringing on my brilliant friend, Pedro Rolón, who's a PhD candidate in comparative literature at UC Berkeley, and he shares what he's been thinking and writing about as he prepares his dissertation. We talked about how the Puerto Rican project has been articulated in Puerto Rican literature from the 19th century to the present, and ultimately he's able to argue that Puerto Rico and, and the project of Puerto Rico is something that transcends these questions about post-colonial or decolonial, that because Puerto Rico exists and its people exist out, existed and continue to exist outside of that framework. It's a really important reminder of about Latinidad and race. So if you want to learn more, definitely recommend becoming a patron. If you become a $10 patron, you also get really dope merch. The You can also just buy merch for yourself, for your family, or your friends. If you want to support, you can get La Dioca Chimbona keychains that have the logo designed by Dichos de Bicho from season one. And there's also bookmarks that say La Dioca Chimbona, a Latina news and politics podcast. And there's also stickers of the logo from season one that I mentioned. You can also rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much to the last two people who have left five-star ratings. I love y'all. I love that there's 213 ratings and we still got that 5.0 rating, baby. Thank you so much. It's leaving uh, actually a review, not just a rating. So rating it five stars, but then also commenting and writing what you like best about the podcast also super, super helps with visibility. So if y'all just want to quickly share why you like the podcast, that's really helpful too. And then finally, you can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation. Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm very excited to bring onto the podcast for the very first time someone that I've been trying to get on the podcast since Cerebronas, <laughs> which was my first podcast project three years ago. My best friend, Pedro Rolón slash Latinx academic, Puerto Rican academic. And we're going to be talking about his dissertation research. He is getting his PhD in comparative literature at UC Berkeley. Pedro, do you want to briefly introduce yourself, say how you are, and share what you've done for self-care this week? Uh, yes, of course. Also, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I've also been wanting to <laughs> <laughs> be on this. It's just, you know, I'm very life. happy that yeah, life and I'm so happy that um, we finally converged and I'm so excited for this. I'm very happy. I'm actually very happy today too also because it's the first day uh, since I guess a week and a half ago that the air quality has been above, um, the AQI has been above 200, which is very unhealthy. And today it is fair for the first time in a while. 
and I have my windows open, um, which hadn't actually happened since then. So that uh, that makes me very happy. So I'm doing really well. And then one thing I've been doing for self care, I think we talked about this before, but I've been watercoloring, which is oh, yes. <laughs> yes, which is very random. I you know I like doodling and that kind of stuff, but I hadn't really thought about it as something that could be a mode of self care, and it really has become that. It's actually very uh, very relaxing, peaceful, and also has helped me a lot through a few writer's blocks because sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, there's this urge, I feel, to the capitalism making us, you know, yearn to be productive at mm -hmm. every possible hour. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is a way of kind of, <laughs> this is a way of kind of healing in that direction, but also still kind of activating some creativity, which ultimately sometimes helps to rethink some of the things I'm writing about. And it finds weird ways of like being useful in that direction, even though I'm doing it exclusively or mostly for uh, for fun for myself. <laughs> yes, that's good. I'm really happy. I think that's such a great self-care tip. I hope other people try watercoloring as well. Yeah. And I'm really happy to hear about the air quality and also that the temperatures have dropped. It's very nice oh. that both of those things happen at the same time because it was like very apocalyptic like you all were in hell because it was sweltering and the oh sky was God. orange <laughs> the air quality was shitty <laughs> it was so bad like that i think it was last wednesday where those pictures like made the rounds mm -hmm. through the internet the sky was absolutely red at the middle of the day like i woke up way later than i wanted to <laughs> only because it just really felt like it was perpetually night but just like it's very gloomy you know ominous red night with very bad air <laughs> just just like girl like and the pandemics and everything just, i know it's too much really it truly really is too much well i'm doing well as well for self-care i mean i keep saying this that, that me bring, making this the check-in question is going to make make me step my self-care game up because the past few times i've said that i kickbox or i meditate but i do both of those things every day so i can't just like keep saying them <laughs> so hmm. <laughs> oh yeah Oh. Oh, okay, okay. So this is what I did for self-care. I I'm so lost in this legal world. I know I'm I know I've been talking about that for the past three years through this podcast journey. <laughs> but I really, really am sorry. <laughs> I just I feel so jaded about legal practice and it's kind of confusing being in this place that I guess I'm like, I'm in this place where a lot of lawyers would like to be, you know, like the organization I work at is some people's dream job, but I see so many flaws with the work and I need guidance. And my trouble is that I don't really have somebody that's in my exact position that can answer my questions. I know really badass yeah. women of color lawyers that are dedicated to being lawyers and are really good. Like I can call on them. If I'm actually lawyering, I can call on them and be like, hey, but they still to some degree buy into the worthwhileness of legal practice and they don't necessarily have my same politics so it's just and the people that i have checked in about are like yeah i'm honestly feeling the same way you are pretty burnt out i don't know if this is really possible long term so i just need Ooh. guidance and i was lucky enough to learn from 
Professor Kathleen Cleaver, <laughs> former Black Panther leader. <laughs> and she went to law school later in life, actually after she had done a lot of her work with the Black Panther Party. And so I just wanted to ask her, what should I do? <laughs> <laughs> please mentor me <laughs> please mentor me because she so one of the reasons I hadn't reached out in a while is because she prefers phone call and that's very intimidating for me as a millennial because I don't call people on the phone and I definitely don't call them out of the blue just to say hey <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird practice to me and especially I'm like oh my god Kathleen Cleaver's so busy like how can I just call her <laughs> <laughs> it's like hey it's been a minute but um it's been really. approximately six years <laughs> <laughs> This thing, I don't even know if she remembers me. Obviously, I remember her because she's iconic. Of course. <laughs> I called, and then it went to voicemail, and her voicemail box was full. So it's pretty anticlimactic overall. But I still think that this is a win in the self-care category because I'm proud of myself for getting up the courage to do yes. it, to, to do the call, because I could have invented a lot of reasons to procrastinate on that and just not do it, talk myself out of it but I did it yeah. and I don't know what that means next. Do I just keep calling? That sounds so aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what's the etiquette for the, for the, for calling again, you know, doing, you know, and I guess I know the email one, but what would be a good. See, the, yeah, this is weird. Right. Because it's like, actually like she should have record of my missed call. Right. Right. It shows so it's up. Like, but I'll, yeah. She should call but, me back. <laughs> and you left the voicemail it was oh the voice no the voice box was full oh, so it's like very no. confusing yeah do you think it no a text message <laughs> mm. you know it's like i finally have that chinese restaurant recommendation that you asked for back oh in the my day God, i was referring to this the last time that i saw kathleen cleaver which was i think it was was it was that 2018 it, like 2018 or 2017, I think, yeah, probably 2018. Because it, well, it, it was like it was like a big anniversary of the Black Panther Party. Yes, true, yes. It was like the 40th yeah, since yeah. the creation of the party, maybe? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so obviously, Kathleen Cleaver was an honored guest at the exhibition at the Oakland Museum of California that was outlining their 40-year history. And I went and had no idea that she was going to be there because she lives on the East Coast. She teaches at Yale and at Emory. And I saw her on the street and was starstruck, even though I like took a whole seminar. It was like a five-person seminar and we like got to know her. <laughs> I came well, but I was still starstruck. And I was and like, <laughs> I know, I mean, because she's just such an amazing person. And like, yeah, I think she has so much to share. But she was like, she, I was like, Professor Cleaver? And I don't even know. She's like, she didn't really register acknowledgement. She was just like, I was like, I'm your student, Yvette. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, she like, did, like I said, like didn't really process any recognition, but it was like, oh, what are some good places to eat around here? <laughs> <laughs> And like I was I was so mad because it was near Oakland's historic Chinatown and like there's some of the best Chinese food ever. Like I could have given her such a good response. But I was yes. so flustered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying well. that that would be a perfect way to segue into the mentorship conversation if you started <laughs> off by saying that oh you know, my God. next time you're in Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my uh, god, that's so funny. Well, I really hope that, that she gets back to you because I really feel that, I mean, from a lot of her conversations, I really, I see how at this moment it would be so perfect yeah. to have Kathleen Cleaver's take on this crossroads. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Beeb. I hope so too. Otherwise, I'm going to just ask one of my coworkers to help me out. I'm going to be like, just ask real questions. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. how do you live with this complicity? <laughs> <laughs> how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. <laughs> I need tips. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> tips on how to exit. <laughs> yeah. uh, To pivot to what is the thing that Andy Cohen says? Yeah, I think he says I'm going to pivot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pivot to talking about your research, which actually is related to 19th century Latinidad. I bet y'all did not think you were going to be learning about 19th century Latinidad on this podcast, but here you are on this intellectual journey with me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Bib, you focus on literature. Do you just want to talk about some of the most important works that you'll, you'll be talking about in your dissertation? Yes. So so my dissertation, as you mentioned, it does start in the 19th century, but it's a project that takes on 19th, 20th, and still tentatively even the 21st. We're talking like, you know, the, the early 2000s and perhaps mm. kind of a coda to the moment of Maria, Hurricane Maria, which was, mm. you know, one of these mm -hmm. other, I would say, just, just as much of a turning point in our political history as, as you know, the 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 1898 Spanish-American War moment when the when Puerto Rico became territory of the United States, and also 1952 when the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico Constitution, the Estado Libre Asociado, or ELA, was founded. So I'll talk a little bit about those dates later on, but for now, just to kind of give a scope of, a t uh, of the timeline that I'm working with. And within that timeline, uh, in the 19th century particularly, I'm looking at the work of Eugenio Maria de Ostos, who is a figure that you know in was was very very fundamental to the development of Puerto Rican letters and also Puerto Rican politics mm. but I, I feel like at the current moment is not really a figure that's really kind of being read to uh, critically, even within even within Puerto Rico, as someone who we should be looking at and trying to trace perhaps new ideas, new uh, forms of thought about our condition, political and individual within the you know this this kind of uh, colonial order. But I'm looking at Eugenio Maria de Ostos because per perhaps because of that, I feel like yeah. I I didn't even think that I wanted to work on the 19th century at all, like. When I started grad school, my project was very 20th century. It was mm -hmm. very, even within the 20th century, kind of post-1950. It was not necessarily mm -hmm. looking at that 19th century moment. But I guess that's one of the great things about <laughs> undergoing this ordeal slash journey slash you know, beautiful <laughs> awakening. It's mm -hmm. that you kind of, a lot of the thoughts kind of lead you to where you need to go. And sometimes it's not about kind of 
starting off at this point that you are so sure about and then going about it in the way that you thought it. I feel like the more I have left room for some of these encounters with the unexpected, the more the project has expanded. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so... That's a good uh, thing. I mean, it'd be sad if you spent six years studying something and came up thinking the same thing. It's like, wow, why did I just do that? (laughs) Honestly, but I know people like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's rough. (laughs) I know, I wonder. Um, (laughs) But all else aside, I feel like looking into the 19th century and looking at the work of Eugenio Maria de Ostos, I'm particularly, I'm reading this text of his, it's it's his only novel. I mean, there's another text that's also novel, but this is really considered his novelistic work par excellence. And it's called La Peregrinación de Bayoan, and it translates to Bayoan's Pilgrimage. And it traces, there's this titular character, Bayoan, is Mm -hmm. writing a diary. So the, the text is written as diary entry. Mm. that recount this man who is very much an autobiographical kind of avatar of Eugenio Maria de Ostos himself as he travels from within the Hispanic Caribbean, so that's Cuba, the Mm -hmm. Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico, and goes through the insular Caribbean and then departs on a journey across the Atlantic to go to Spain to vouch for the cause of political reform within the colonies. Mm. So another kind of text that this novel is drawing from is obviously Christopher Columbus's 1492 journal. Mm -hmm. So it's almost this rewriting in reverse of of this, you know, such a you know foundational and terrible document of history as is the the 1492 expedition journal but the interesting gesture i guess what what, what kind of captivated me about the project is that throughout the text this character this affected very highly romanticized like this is like he really is believing himself to be like the martyr of the Puerto Rican cause to you know to represent himself as a Puerto Rican citizen in the courts of Spain in order to argue not for absolute independence but for political reform because a kind of kind of important thing to keep in mind if we're talking about the 19th century in the Caribbean and a lot of Latin America too is that the a lot of the first kind of moves that articulated some kind of autonomy or independence in these places were moves of reform that is to say like mm. we're no longer a colony we are a province mm-hmm. and in that category of not of being a province there's the idea that you know you're kind of subsumed under and protected by the legal representation of that crown in even if you're thousands of miles away. So there's an interesting thing happening there about identification or, or, or ideas of relationship versus sovereignty, independence and sovereignty versus annexation are already kind of being mm-hmm. problematized from within the 19th century. So it's important to always kind of look at these texts by thinking about what was the geopolitical sort of conversation at the moment, which sort of draws this character to argue for such a thing as reform. Now, this text, and I haven't mentioned this before, was written in 1863. Mm-hmm. It was an edition that was written in 1863. And then 10 years later, in 1873, he republishes the text. An important thing that also happened in 1873 is the abolition of slavery mm. in Puerto Rico. So that's, mm. you know, it was actually one of the one of the last places for that to happen. Yeah, that's pretty late. 
Yeah, in the insular Hispanic Caribbean, um, and generally, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely very late. So, but, you know, it's important to keep that date in mind because in republishing this text, he writes a different introduction and then also includes a series of footnotes where he's commenting on his previous thoughts on the edition. Mm. Uh, But but the text, nevertheless, um, remains the same. So that's also a very interesting gesture going on there because you could have kind of revised the document to make it somehow more aligned with both the cause of abolition, which he at that point was already fiercely defending, and also an updated take on this reform issue. Since by by, uh, 1873, Bostos is writing in one of these footnotes that, oh, these were my thoughts at that time, but now I am completely convinced that Puerto Rico should be um, an independent and you know, independent oh, place wow. and should not you know, should abol- should argue for complete independence. So it's a very interesting, very interesting shift. And what I'm tracking in the text, other than these interesting positionalities with regards to empire, how Puerto Rico is thinking of itself, you know, how a voice Mm -hmm. is starting to be formed, which is a voice for Puerto Rico. It's one of the first, like, Mm. sanctioned attempts to do that with such a, with, I guess, such an organized program. It's not to say that that's like the first Puerto Rican text, mm-hmm, but it is mm-hmm. kind of this first written by someone with the kind of simultaneous political and literary power who is, you know, venturing out to kind of write the island, to say, mm, to, mm-hmm. to, to express it metaphorically, it's just like writing it into being, kind of writing it in a way which becomes this kind of self conscious articulation of what Puerto Rico is, period. Um, and because it's trying to take on this endeavor, it ultimately shows in a series of ways that I'm kind of tracking in my chapter, this is the first chapter of the dissertation, how the text is constantly failing to truly kind of amount to a sanctioned, powerful text. And by what I mean powerful is this ability for literary or narrative, I guess, fabulation to to mirror and interact with legal discourse in a way mm-hmm. that ultimately mm-hmm. shows the fictionality of both, but also like the malleability of both of these registers and how like, mm. they're strategically being employed to address these questions about le- legitimacy and autonomy and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So my conclusion about this, to kind of sum it up, is just to say that this text is ultimately trying to gain a solvent kind of authoritative word, letter, or law for itself, but ultimately fails because the condition which he is trying to explain, which is the Puerto Rican condition, is Mm -hmm. somehow out of the bounds of the capacity for this legal language or the language of imperial sovereignty or reformation to actually be capacious enough to fit it. That's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. way that, you know, the text shows its failures, which is to say what it points at by its failure is the fact that there's something there that somehow cannot, in which these historical categories or legal categories that we've been employing to address the Puerto Rican question do not hold. Oh my gosh, Beeb, there's so many things I want to ask. Okay. Um, Sorry, that was really, yeah, I really just like, kind of laughed. <laughs> no, but I didn't want inter- to interrupt the flow. So can you explain what he was arguing for, in, what Bayouan was arguing for in 1863 versus 1873 and what, what it was the distinction between a province and a colony? And 
Also, if you could speak to the, how literature was employed in the time period and how this really, this dichotomy that we now have, I think, of literature versus politics is was not as strong in the time period, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the, to, to answer your first question, which was just to kind of make a, a bit of, of a distinction between what, what Bayouan was arguing for in 1863 versus 73. Mm-hmm. So in 1863, Ostos via Bayouan is, and also a lot of the, you know, political kind of society at the time, it was kind of a common cause, I could say, was to argue for form, which is to say that Puerto Rico would still remain a possession of the Spanish crown. So there is that kind of implicit affiliation with Spain mm-hmm. and the and, and the queen and the king. Mm-hmm. So there's this desire to be seen by the empire as a legitimate political subject mm-hmm. in that place. That, yeah, that's why you said it was like Christopher Columbus in reverse, because it's like this Puerto Rican subject going to Spain, trying to make themselves legible in order to become part of the Spanish empire. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And and Bayouan is traveling by aboard this ship, and the stops that Bayouan is making are almost textbook in reverse the stops that Christopher Columbus oh, made wow. in, in reverse chronological order. There's a map at the beginning. So there's there's this, you know, the text itself and to, to just kind of uh, condense it in a way, it almost like it's trying to make itself seem so legit and so official mm. that it almost, like you say, it mirrors the way also a text like Christopher Columbus's 1942, 1492, sorry, 1492 <laughs> journal is attempting to also be authoritative. Mm-hmm. It's attempting to also kind of claim some knowledge about this space that he is entering, which he actually has zero knowledge about. So, but also whilst, you know, while still trying to make the, the king queen back in, in Spain, trust the fact that there's some knowledge going on into this and that this project is absolutely logical and, and, and going about great. But yeah, just to kind of go back to the to the 1863 edition and the issue of political reform, again, yeah, so there was this idea of being seen as a legible political subject for Spain while also... But how is that different from being a colonial subject? What What... What would the province or that reform have granted? And also, was the author and the titular character, like, was the relationship to Puerto Rican land and indigeneity? Okay, so, so the 18, in that, in that 1863 edition, when, which the reform is being argued for, reform would have granted Puerto Rico legal representation in the Cortes de Cadiz in the mm. Spanish courts at the time, okay. which, was, which was not the case up until then. So it, basically, okay, yeah. it would have been an absolute silence while still being kind of abiding by the the laws, especially, and this is the case, this was the case at the time, a lot of these decisions were definitely motivated by trade and commerce. Having certain rights over your commerce and trade also meant that you could participate in this economy, this which included the, the slave trade, but also included, you know, other goods that were being produced in Puerto Rico. So there were also there's also this kind of capacity to have a certain degree of sovereignty over 
over over your money, essentially. So there was this, there, there's that category and that kind of provision granted by reform, but it was seen as a more, I guess, moderate provision than asking for absolute independence because you were still kind of respecting or or, 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 or pledging loyalty essentially to yeah. the Spanish army and to the to the to the crown essentially. Yeah, and it was about entering their markets. Too. Right. It was. It's definitely about entering their markets. It's definitely about having the maritime fleet to to do all the all, all participate that way, and ultimately what ensues the shift to this 1873 moment and which is you know pivotal pivotal in thinking independence the way that Ostos then thinks about it when he republishes this text is this situation about the abolition of slavery which again then becomes another really important axis for thinking and how Puerto Rico figures itself as an independent place because by the time that this comes out, not only is Olstos more radicalized, he's also just a very fervent abolitionist. He's also gone, he's become this almost transnational figure as well hmm. in Latin America. His nickname at the time was El Ciudadano de America because he traveled hmm. across, he was very invested in this pan-Caribbean, pan-Latin American kind of solidarity in which the, the kind of national paradigm was less important than this kind of regional geopolitical construct that he and others at this time were also kind of trying to develop. Mm. So, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the shift between the colonial, that's a difference, I guess, between absolute colonial condition and this reform. There's some degree, whether arguably not much better degree of sovereignty within mm-hmm. that. Which then, I guess the, the takeaway for me in looking at that interaction or looking at that conundrum, legal conundrum, is just how then it makes Postos, via this character by Yoan, try to figure out, try to come up with such imaginative ways of trying to figure out what it means to be Puerto Rican. And then he's doing that while also having very present this need to kind of glorify and bow down essentially to the Spanish crown, wanting this kind of representation, wanting to be recognized politically Mm -hmm. while also wanting to pledging allegiance in a certain way, which just that, that, that crisis, I guess, that identity crisis that, that ensues is what I feel I'm, I'm, is most interesting and I'm tracking in that text. Um, your other question, you mentioned that you wanted to hear a little bit about this uh, literature at the time and how literature mm-hmm. and political writing mm-hmm. were related to each other. So in the 19th century, this was the case not only in Puerto Rico or, this, or the Caribbean, but in all of Latin America, the first class obviously that have access to the writing medium and the education and the platforms to publish were the land-owning political criollo class which was white and were either had been had arrived there from Europe or had been you know one generation in Latin America those would be the criollos who you know were born there but obviously have all their ties and solidarities with Europe so these these Criollos, this criollo class was in was you know traveling to Europe, getting their education, their their university education in Europe, in in Paris, in Barcelona, in these you know urban metropolis spaces of Europe, and then coming back to 
Latin America and trying to figure out how to digest and how to a, how to digest this experience of, you know, receiving this education and then coming back and also then how, how they tried over and again to then structure and shape the political futures of their respective places and their respective lands to kind of model them after somehow the what they had experienced in, in Europe. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of that, you know, a lot of that knowledge, a lot of that you want to call it history, science, all these political tools, all these tools of study that also become political tools were very much happening with the kind of filter of this education in mind. And also obviously solidarity to their class and race, I would say, in creating these you know, mm-hmm. structures of power and domination in these spaces. And literature, Going back to the, the the role of literature, particularly journalism too. Journalism was another really big. Other people could talk about the press and the circulation of newspapers and journals at the time with much more knowledge than I could. But for the sake of this argument, it's important to know that yeah, that that to be to be printed in, a, in any kind of medium, whether that be literary or journalistic, was basically your way of voicing and creating a discourse around your ideas and people mm-hmm. read that and you basically created that was the beginning also of kind of creating your brand as kind of <laughs> oh my god I was literally thinking that yeah that's kind <laughs> of <a> millennial <laughs> that's basically it you know these these writers were just kind of creating their brands and trying to create in creating the brand obviously they're creating an audience mm-hmm. so they're constantly the 19th century is a great place to look at how audiences and publics are being created mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. virtue of the the appeals that they're making in these texts, they are creating political communities by writing. And so it's important then to consider literary writing in the 19th century in relation to then the political, very, very solidly in conjunction with the political futures. Because I know, I mean, it still is the case today, I believe, that our literature is... It's highly political and has the capacity mm-hmm. and has political capacity. But at the time, it was even less metaphorical, perhaps mm-hmm. less poetic. It was truly the, the line was very blurry. And in creating these publics and creating these audiences who consumed, read and diffused your work, you essentially created your, your political platform. And so Ostos was very aware of this. And even in the in the preface to his text, he's literally saying, I want to conquer a literary name in order to conquer a political name. Like, I want to mm-hmm. have this power in order for Puerto Rico to finally kind of birth, be birthed into modernity, essentially, right. you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, there's a very foundational kind of desire for him there. He's like really trying so hard to write Puerto Rico. And then for me, it's, you know, a question that raises is then it's interesting that then he he's he has to do it through this like intensely fictionalized and avatar projection of himself, which brings into question all these things about his positionality and how he, you know, is going about it, which I'll be happy to talk about, but just kind of answer the question about literary power and, and, and how that relates to to the political kind of space. I, I think that that's that's about that. Mm-hmm. And was him taking on the 
persona of Baiwan, like you said, this kind of fictionalized projection of his own ideas into this avatar. Was that like a common trope at the time for authors as a way to, I don't, I don't know why he would want anonymity for himself, but was there, what is the subtext behind his choice to do that? I understand, I understand that also, like you're saying, these genres of literature versus politics were blurred. And I would assume that some things were told in a particular way to be more captivating. But other than that, why do you think that he chose to express himself through Baiwan? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a question that I'm also thinking about a lot in this chapter. And I guess I've some of the answers that I've come to. So the name Bayuan, the name Bayuan is also an indigenous kind of Taino name. Mm. And in the novel, which is also kind of this like oh, wow. a, a novel in the mo <clears throat> with, with with the key, which is essentially that the, the the characters are allegorically related to certain places. So there's these other, so this Bayuan is the Puerto Rican character. So Bayu, mm -hmm. the name Bayuan represents, is an avatar for the island of Puerto Rico as a whole. And mm -hmm. then you have Marien, who's the kind of love interest of Bayuans, and she represents Cuba. <laughs> and so, yes, so there's this kind of like allegorical, uh, on one level, this like a allegorical association with that name. And then also, interestingly enough, that Bayuan as a name is also a Taino name. When, where, where does that fit in the conversation about, you know, Christopher Columbus in the journal? Well, I feel one provisional answer for this question is at the time, a lot of the discourse on what is what is autonomously and autochthonously Puerto Rican or Hispanic Caribbean revolved a lot around ways of circumventing blackness mm. in mm. these spaces. So you mm -hmm. can you look at a lot of the history of all of the Spanish Caribbean and Latin America as Latin well America, and yeah. find moments where indigeneity is almost this very convenient way of circumventing the question of blackness in mm -hmm. spaces. If especially this is especially important then when we continue reading the text and seeing the ways in which Ostos is kind of discussing some very peculiar and you know scary moments of the the possession of enslaved peoples in the Caribbean mm. and in Puerto Rico and in Cuba and how the project of building these nation states or autonomous spaces revolved also around the subjection of black peoples from in the Caribbean. So there's already that the use of Bayuana's name kind of Wow. Yeah, I know it's fucked. <laughs> And what's, you know, what, what becomes even more troubling then is seeing how in the text, the condition of, you know, there's one passage in which essentially that when Ostos arrives and Cuba meets Marien and is observing Marien's father and Marien's family lives in these like haciendas, these mm -hmm. 19th century plantations mm -hmm. where... Usually this Criollo landowning class lived and mm -hmm. he's observing this beautiful landscape and admiring Marianne's father and 
the whole whole depth. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, the father. Definitely, like, there's this very interesting like representing like patriarchal Cuba. It, absolutely. While also just representing the fact that it's like, oh, like Marianne's father is such a benevolent slave owner, essentially, because oh. he treats his, his slaves with such care and such attention and they know how to read and they know how to write. And there's a lot of this kind of appeal to kind of justifying the, 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 that kind of the, the slave owning mm-hmm. enterprise, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also interestingly enough, trying to model that relationship of a benevolent slave owner and the kind of gracious and um, cared for enslaved subject to essentially this idea of reform. It's like, oh, like Puerto Rico's political reform situation is kind of this. This is what it would look like. It would be such, you know, such a happy kind of willed and 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 thanked for submission to Spain as the master. That 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 that's a, that's kind of and this is one of those moments in the text, and then he revisits in the seventy three edition. Ask what he said the, on the revisiting. On the revisiting, he said like <laughs> he put a little footnote in there. It was like, oh, these thoughts in which I was comparing, because it seems it seems he got shit for for this <laughs> section, sure. but not not but not in the way that it should have been. Oh <laughs> so, no! Like yeah, they're all kidding. like trying to say like, are you? I, I guess he got complaints about perhaps attacking personally attacking the the ascendado class oh of puerto rico his, of puerto rico it's like and, he, and he's they're saying they're not nice like the cubans yeah or generally just yeah attacking yes essentially attacking like the benevolence of the of the puerto rican state running class and in this footnote he clarifies what i meant by this footnote was this comparison or allegorization of puerto rico and spain with this situation of the benevolent slave owner and that shouldn't have been taken as as the as the criticism of our ascendados our being puerto Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the interesting way that he went. What about class that. is this man, this author? Like, who, like is like, when he's saying that? Does he imagine himself as a slave to Spain, or does he imagine himself as like a liaison between the Puerto Rican subject slave in Spain? That's that's a really good question. I don't I'm, I don't know if I'm absolutely sure yet, but I believe it's something that includes both of those. There is at yeah. once this kind of liaison. I will become the bridge that translates this Rican condition to Spain so that I can create these links of solidarity and political alliance while also constantly submitting to this kind of glory that is the Spanish crown. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, also appealing to the the Spanish crowns, this, almost like there's this, there's this constant appeal in the text to the almost like religious, spiritual grandeur of world history and historical unfolding. And mm-hmm. it's just like, yes, thanks to this alliance, we will finally be kind of thrusted into that movement of the spirit of the world. Wow. And and in that case, it becomes, and then the question then, I feel like that's another interesting thing that's going on. He kind of almost to a certain extent is, yes, admiring Spain, but also kind of saying, well, there's even, there's an even higher power than Spain and that is God. 
and before the eyes of God who bestows power upon the crown, we are already, you know, good political subjects. So Spain has to now see it for themselves and see that we are, you know, the new, the new, he calls it like the new man. He's, he's trying to devise this idea of like el hombre nuevo, this kind of new political subject of Spanish America and essentially saying like, we are not in, we are not against Spain, but rather we are the culmination of Spain's grandeur in the new world, essentially. So that's, you know, that's another very strange thing that I have to grapple with in reading this text, because it's constantly switching back and forth and how it's aligning itself. It's not always very clear cut, which is why I mentioned earlier that there's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a failed text in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Because it never kind of congeals into a solid project that is translatable even to the time. Yeah. So, yeah. You want me to kind of like explain a little bit more on, on, on some of these particular scenes, but I'm also happy to broaden it's not the only text yeah. I'm looking at, but it's also um, very, it's also very much, I mean, it's the only one in the 19th century that I'm mm-hmm. kind of looking at. And it's also, okay. yeah. Oh, okay. I, just, <laughs> I, if I don't interrupt, I'm going to forget the question. <laughs> the, okay. The, I have two questions. The, the first is the discourse that you were <clears throat> just mentioning about El Nuevo Hombre reminds me of Mestizaje discourse and the story of La Malinche and how the son that she had with Cortez was this new race of people. It was Mestizos. Do you, do you see parallels between those discourses? Do you see differences? And then also, Chris mentioned that he, he likes thinking about performance because it allows us to know about people in the past who perhaps who weren't literate and who weren't able to write novels and so this this understanding of puerto rican sovereignty or like this this processing of it is being told by as you said these wealthy probably white transnational figures that are really influenced by europe Mm -hmm. so how do you what is missing from that account and is that just beyond the project or how, how are you? Well, because you're literally a literature, you know, person. So <laughs> you're going to read the text. But yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. but like you also have to think about that too, right? Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. Constantly, constantly. And it's something, something that I have to think about even as I am taking on literary projects that are infinitely more capacious and expansive and radical than Eugenio Maria de Ostos. Absolutely. But before I, before I, perhaps before I answer that, I can talk a little bit about the, 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 the comparison with Mestizaje. And it's really great that you brought that up because the, for Ostos, I guess they're similar in the, in, in the sense that they're trying to create this foundational fiction of how the mm-hmm. citizen is born. Mm-hmm. This is like, we always have to have this story about how we came to be in an almost like mythological birth of the human kind mm-hmm. of situation. It's, 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 I would say it's very much in the literary and kind of political imaginaries of the time to figure it this way as a foundation, truly as a foundational fiction. It is very similar in that sense. It is different in that in Puerto Rico, already having 
difficulty tracing the the Tainos were essentially wiped out very very quickly into the colonial project in Puerto Rico. So, you know, by the 16th century, that was not something that could legitimately articulate mm. for the time, the Puerto Ricans. So, so, and then, wow. but what enters the scene is blackness mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. is what then troubles the conversation about the foundation of this kind of hombre nuevo. It troubles it because it is the fact that the only, that the, the, the only other kind of subject that this project is constantly trying to not really talk about is the black subject. And mm-hmm. it would almost be kind of have to force these writers of the Criollo landowning wealthy educated class to grapple with that as a truly as a human that they have to count account for in these imaginations. But that's that's the for me the block and that's for me the impasse that Ostos essentially kind of runs into and it's ultimately why I think the text is failing constantly because it's failing to find a way to fit in blackness into a model that is ultimately still tied to one of the pivotal powers of the of the of the slave trade. And so uh, to, to recapitulate that difference, I think it's a difference that ultimately throws Puerto Rico into a, com- a complicated situation about where do we found where where do we find our kind of Malinche, where do we find like our mm. root narrative mm-hmm. that will finally explain for history and for politics and forever the condition. For mater- you're like entry into modernity, you have to have your origin story. You have to have you your entry have point. To- Exactly. So you have, and and so then, what, what this nineteenth-century text, which for me is my main concern with having the, the dissertation open there, is not uh, to kind of revalorize necessarily the ways that we need to read Ostos to understand the Puerto Rican condition, but yes, how we need to read it in order to understand how our failures have already mm-hmm. demonstrated the openings that are available to us as people whose being is constantly questioned since the 19th century and presently mm-hmm. because, you know, I mentioned the date 1952 mm-hmm. earlier um, and the foundation of the Estado Libre Asociado after Puerto Rico becomes a possession in 1898. That's already after Ostos is published by Joan. Mm-hmm. When, you know, the, when by Joan publishes this text, it's still a possibility to think our independence. But by the time the Spanish-American War ends in 1898, that is, you know, it's very clear that we have passed on from one colonial regime to to another consecutive colonial regime. And in 1952, that colonial condition solidifies itself, legalizes itself as Estado Libre Asociado, otherwise known as the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, in whose constitution is essentially this giving of power to the federal government while also mm-hmm. retaining very limited provisions of sovereignty, which is very deja vu with this 1863 condition of reform. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like almost this traumatic repetition of that moment. But then again, you know, now the in, in, in the 20th century, the question becomes, okay, so now that this condition of free association is finally kind of written into the law, then where do we go from here? How do we, what is dissent? What does radical 
reshifting of our political condition mean in a situation where the very law that would grant that to us is already writing us as legally possessed by mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. U.S. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's when I, in the 20th century, there's all other questions and texts that I'm looking at to address that question. But ultimately, the reason, as you said, yes, I, I am a student of literature and I have, I mean, I, I uh, that's what my degrees are or mm-hmm. Well, actually, let me not jinx that shit. I have one degree and that is my... No, you have two. You have a BA and your MA. Well, yeah, I guess Berkeley doesn't technically give you like a degree for that, but you can claim it if you want to. But they always so take... So you do have it. I guess. Yes, I do. You have to okay. opt in to get like the physical paper. You yes. And, and I don't even have Pedro Rolón like MA on any document right now. And when I finally get my PhD, it won't be like MA slash PhD. It'll just be PhD. It'll just be PhD. So uh, I got punked. <laughs> you're on your, you're on your way. You're on your way. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my way. And this is literally my, this is my capstone project and I feel mm-hmm. it closer than ever. So, so yeah, but just to say as a student of literature, I've always, I'm always confronted with the fact that you dated and which I think is fundamental for anybody who's looking at literature or any kind of thing that's written it's Mm -hmm. the fact that writing is a colonial technology Mm -hmm. like writing was a mode of control and it was the way that science as a discipline as an emerging racist discipline in pre-modernity and modernity Mm -hmm. and presently Mm -hmm. are languages that are used to control and surveil and suppress so Mm -hmm. that also that language is radically an opportunity for reimaginations and performance can happen in writing that's another kind of Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. that uh Mm -hmm. is also interesting to look at i Mm -hmm. love love performance studies i think some of the most someone for for me jose esteban muñoz is one of my sort of main inspirations for a lot of what i do he wrote this book queer utopia and disidentifications you know very important for queer of color critique and queer of color performance studies so i feel like in a certain way i always I was always very captivated by the possibility and the, I guess, equanimity that performance allows in the sense that, like, you know, anybody Mm -hmm. and someone even without language as a a tool can perform and Mm -hmm. can do and gesture all these things that Mm -hmm. also at that, you know, in this text is doing. But then I'm also thinking about how in the space of writing or with the act of writing, there is, there can be something that is of the, uh, of the radical potential of performance happening at the, at the level of the written word. And of course, even though that still kind of is happening within the written word, there's always like degrees within these, um, within these media to kind of mm-hmm. to kind of explore what the text that I'm looking at in the in the 20th century it's funny funnily enough the two poets that I'm looking at who are 20th century poets were also themselves performers they did you oh, know cool. like street theater but they also mm-hmm. did one of them was a singer songwriter and would perform at cafe revolutionary cafes in Puerto Rico during the time of heavy resistance to the Estado Libre Asociado so there is okay. already an element of performance in in these in these two texts, both mm-hmm. in the literal sense, but also because both of them as performers were heavily 
thinking about and employing their voice. And that's a, that's something I think about a lot. And when I'm reading, like, how is a voice, how is a voice being created here? And I think for mm -hmm. me, like, voice and the sound and, and, and these sonic qualities that come out in writing are the place where performance is happening. You're kind of trying out different voices and in that trying out of voices, like something weird kind of comes up and emerges that wasn't kind of anticipated by what was being written, but somehow was very interesting to look at and very, in my opinion, very radical and offers a lot of really interesting possibilities to consider for what our future can be. Who are the two authors of the two texts? And were they both, it was both post-1952? Yes, so the two writers, one of them is Angela Maria Davila. And Angela Maria Davila writes, I'm, I'm looking at two books, two books of poetry, because Ostos is the only, I think, novel project that I'm looking at in my dissertation. Uh, everything else is to some degree poetry. I, I love poetry, and I think that it's honestly, I, I've found it to be, if there's a place where this radical performance of voice can happen in mm -hmm. literature, it is through poetry. Mm -hmm. um, not to say it can happen in other ways, but I, you know, I just really like poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm looking at these poets, uh, Angela Maria Davila wrote two books and published, and, and one of her books was published posthumously. But she wrote this book of poems called Homenaje al Ombligo, so it's like Ode to mm. the Navel. <laughs> um, and then another book called Animal Fiero y Tierno, so there's like you know, ferocious and tender animal. And then the other, that's that's in this post-19, both of them are post-1952. This one is very close to that point because it was, one of her books was published in the 60s and the other one was published in the 70s. So the very much responding to that situation that I alluded to and that like, you know, suddenly Puerto Rico is legally possessed by the U.S. and political alliances are being formed to kind of radically strip that power of the U.S. and, you know, really to fight for an autonomous, autonomous Puerto Rican nation. And then the other text that I'm looking at is in the nine, that's already like the 80s and 90s, and it's uh, Manuel Ramos Otero, who, I mean, I, you're, I remember from your thesis, from your senior thesis in undergrad. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, this is queer Puerto Rican poet, also kind of uh, a dweller of the kind of Puerto Rican diaspora that was going on uh, around the 1970s, where a lot of these folks, especially at the time when social movements of gender and sexual equality were kind of taking shape in Puerto Rico, Ramos Otero himself felt that being queer in Puerto Rico was kind of impossible for him at the time. So mm -hmm. he moved to New York, lived most of his literary career uh, in New York, and died in Puerto Rico of AIDS-related illness in 1990. But the, most of the most of the illness and most of the kind of tribulations did happen kind of away from Puerto Rico, which already kind of, again, in the context of this conversation about how Puerto Rico understands itself and the Puerto Rican experience understands itself, I like looking at these figures that are kind of existing with the remnants of what was left behind and all these conversations about Puerto Rican identity, but how does queerness, mm. how does my sexuality, how does my illness, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as, 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 as a gay man living with AIDS and being poor in 1980s in New York City also speak to the condition that is Puerto Rico. Mm. Like, 
obviously Puerto Rico cannot be understood without its diaspora, but furthermore, it can't be understood without all these moments of suffering and, mm, and, exile. And, and exile and death and being ostracized. Death is a really big one for me. A lot mm -hmm. of these texts that I'm looking at happen to always kind of allude to situations of death and dying. In Bayoan, the lover, Marien, dies mm. of consumption, which is, you know, the 19th century illness. A lot of the female characters <laughs> in the 19th century were killed off um, by being ill, <laughs> like getting... What is consumption? What, like tuberculosis. What? Oh, I thought it was like some patriarchal... Like <laughs> Like, I don't even know. Like you ate, you ate and drank too much, or like you had too much sex. You just consumed too much. I mean, basically, in a in a way, but, um, but it was tuberculosis actually. But it was tuberculosis. <laughs> okay. But the novel, but it is something interesting about being about writing illness and these characters is that a lot of the ways that the 19th century wrote about illness was illness and illness that caused you to be overly sensitive and mm. overly receptive to the world and that just like that's just too much and it just ha just so happened to you know kill women like wow. <laughs> it's just like so yeah so i don't think that you're <laughs> it, you're you're too you're definitely that's also true like, yeah. is that as well and you know i talked a little bit about but i didn't mention too much about angela maria Davila, and i think mm -hmm. that you know she really does deserve i think it's the, i mean i'm currently writing this chapter so i'm very excited about reading her work and i'm really excited about being in such close contact with her poetry right now and so as i mentioned before she published these three books and she was a singer songwriter was very kind of popular in the in the emerging kind of politically driven protest music scene in the island and so her her poetry is very infused with the sound and the, the, this kind of like bolero music that she performed and in her works she is also very interested in in death too she's writing all these poems and then she you know her she figures herself as this like dying lover kind of mm -hmm. situation and my 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 way of kind of reading that because i'm reading it in the context of these other authors is something about the condition of being doubly colonized mm -hmm. subject in this island or, or you know archipelago essentially abandoned in a certain way by history and by modernity and by all these i guess power granting discourses in history is very like a condition of living death it is mm. very much like the kind of political living mm -hmm. dead of of our kind of understandings of history or, or kind of our concepts about what is enduring and long-lastingly a political power. In that conversation, we are in this almost like decaying, dead condition by virtue of the neglect and the, the consecutive violent orders that have taken place there. So a lot of these writers are looking at almost death there's almost almost like a death wish in a lot of these texts. There's this desire, like death is a kind of freedom from this need to be seen as like mm. politically solvent. And a lot of these writers are tackling, you know, there's a lot of ghosts. There's a lot of spectral ghost-like figures of people die, like I said, with this Mayan character, but also in the case of Ramos Opero, his book of, second book of poems, which is the one that was published posthumously because he 
died of AIDS-related illness before this text was published. It's called Invitación al Polvo, so it's like Invitation to Death. None of these have been translated, unfortunately, which is very sad. So that's why I keep like translating as I go, but... Oh, wow. The issue oh my God, Beep, such an amazing project, so necessary. <laughs> I think that, you know, I've, I also feel very, very happy that I also kind of get to... Happy and sometimes frustrated is really yeah. fucking, fucking frustrating sometimes when you're just like having to present these things to committees and to viewers. And so, that, you know, external evaluation and all this stuff that, you know, you constantly have to... I have to find myself also in a situation in which I translate all of this, not only the literal text, but the project as a whole to people who not necess don't necessarily have the sensibility for it in these academic spaces. Not to say that I haven't found amazing allies and amazing mentors who've really fostered and really believe in the project, but it, I, I sometimes think about that condition of like writing about these untranslatable kind of works while also kind of grappling with the possibility of my project at times seeming untranslatable or indecipherable to those who are reading it to give me my degree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, anyway, yeah. So, so, so Your project is pretty meta, I feel like, when you think about Baiyuan. <laughs> Because I'm not, I'm not by your one in this situation. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, babe. You're not by your one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so, so how is it meta? Well, because if Bayouan was trying to make Puerto Rico legible to Spain and you're trying to make Puerto Rico legible to your, to your dissertation committee. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> but not, yeah. <laughs> no, totally. I, I, I am performing my argument for my committee. <laughs> and that's my degree. <laughs> uh, I'd just be like, I'm just going to text them tomorrow. Like, like email, email my committee. <laughs> Texting Judas Butler. <laughs> and just be like, you know, so I just decided, I just, it, it came to be thanks for conversation for, with, in, in Barrio Cachimona that I am performing my dissertation. And so I'm ready to file. <laughs> I'm ready to file. <laughs> Because someone please give me a tenure track position. In case you have noticed, it's self-evident. <laughs> give me so my like, degree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but it's actually the opposite of bite one because you're like not trying to make it legible. It's like, as you're saying, that's kind of like what you're scared of is because you're ultimately arguing that these things like are not translatable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah, not yeah, like yeah. Categor easily categorizable. I'm just kidding. But I'm a troll no, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm very, I'm very aware of that, and I'm also, I, the reason I really fight for, or kind of constantly, I feel it, it seems like a fight because as I'm writing it, I can already sometimes anticipate folk miss reading or misinterpreting or not really kind of meeting me at the place where I am reading these texts mm -hmm. and could, you know, try to sway. It's like, oh, but why aren't you writing about it this way? Or what do you, you know, or even my writing style or mm -hmm. all these things that I'm constantly feeling self-conscious about when I'm undertaking this project that I, it really does sometimes feel like I'm you know, really fighting for this idea 
and insisting on this issue of like untranslatability or like, you know, the question, I call it other times like the questionability, the fact that Puerto Rican being as a kind of, you know, before political, before citizenship, you know, at the very kind of level of experience of what it means to be a human that has been in this place throughout, you know, its, its, its consecutive colonial histories. Why can't we just allow that to be an untranslatable experience, which ultimately informs the categories that we need or need to throw away in order to approach knowledge or approach like understanding Puerto Rico? And I feel like if we, you know, have that conversation, then that means that we all like, you know, ultimately, it's not just about Puerto Rico in that moment. Puerto Rico just becomes kind of an expression or a kind of moment to analyze or think about why these categories of the historical and of the legal and of the mm-hmm. sanctioned and of permanence mm-hmm. versus like, why can't we, and modernity, why can't we have things that exist or political constitutions, alliances, common, you know, kinships that are aware of the fact that, that things perish and die, that things like rot, that things like are sometimes invisible and elusive and not hard, not easy to pin down. And then mm-hmm. we create these other concepts that try to like anxiously avoid that and then end up like fucking everyone over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. When we talked about this last time, you said that you feel like the project speaks to how resistance in Puerto Rico has been without, within, and beyond the post-colonial scheme. And I definitely see through talking to you today, Beeb, how your project does that. Very amazing. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I really, no, it really means a lot for you to say that because it's like also being in, being in grad school or being in this, you know, neoliberal regime, it's, it's lonely to sometimes feel like, you know, your ideas and you're, you know, really thinking about these things and you fear that when you go out and share them that you're just going to be alienated because, because like it's not really like translating to anybody but yeah. uh i'm it's always I, know. I feel that way when i put a piece of writing out like, oh my god why did i write that that's so embarrassing it's so embarrassing <laughs> like oh my god yeah, oh, somebody already just... had that take it's so unnecessary <laughs> exactly and it's just like really super corny and unnecessary kind of voice of self-sabotage and kind of like internalized very much internalizing these categories of whatever yeah. we think that you know something solid and modern and 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 able to kind of hold in this world is and that you know really fucks with our all these possible radical emergent beautiful things that we can imagine from within already this condition that has almost written our death or our destruction into itself so it's it's always to me exciting and uh, I guess encouraging to see how this resistance and how this how the imagination of what being Puerto Rican has already kind of taken place at different moments throughout history even even as like these nefarious acts of violence have taken place mm-hmm. and which is also I guess a, a great moment to mention how how important black studies has been to mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. project because I think Honestly, for me, in American academia, Black Studies is like the the only thing that is worth reading these Mm -hmm, days often mm -hmm. because... Yeah, I know. I'm kind of getting... I'm kind of understanding that now from from Twitter and like these interviews. I'm like, okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, it's just like... (laughs) (laughs) It's just like... it, 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 for me, has given, you know, has provided...
provided a toolkit that I always have to, you know, obviously negotiate the, the, the transposing of certain frameworks into not to say like, oh, black studies can suddenly explain Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. but we, uh, I feel we need like, yeah. this, these frameworks and these epistemological new kind of understandings of the categories like the human or, you know, or the state and, you know, very, all, all, our, all, the, all the trash toolkit that we have to like look at these things is being revisited and, you know, exploded mm-hmm. by the field of Black study. And I feel that I have really benefited from engaging with some key texts for example i you know just to mention a few texts that i think people should be to definitely read when mm-hmm, they you know mm-hmm. have the time christina Ooh, sharp's christina sharp's in the wake on blackness and being okay. amazing amazing text very intense to read <laughs> but a fantastic look at how the about the condition of blackness within this, you know, world of social death, of social and, you know, bodily death of the, of, of black subjects is, you know, she tries to find ways of, of, of insisting on the possibility of black being even within these structures and ins- insisting on how the, 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 what she calls this, the wake, which is the kind of the, the, the wake of being awake, but also the wake that ships leave on the water as mm. they, so she follows, she tracks that metaphor from the moment of the slave ship to contemporary police brutality. It looks at different instances where the wake of the slave ship is repeating itself oh wow in you know throughout history and in the and but at every moment always looking at how blackness has figured life and has figured ways of Mm. being even there so already that you know reading a framework like that just really opened up how i was going to approach reading these other texts because it's it's very actually really embarrassing how in a lot of Caribbean studies in Puerto Rico, not Caribbean studies in general, but definitely like in Hispanic Caribbean studies mm-hmm. and in Spanish departments, how very little, how 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 poor the conversations around blackness can be, yeah, definitely. and how it's kind of important to really have really these conversations alongside that because like the way that race and identity has been so yeah just christina sharp's in the wake fantastic book and uh, such an important conversation to have with you know our contemporary the contemporary reality but also uh in the case of uh, my own discipline in my own field um, which is sometimes resisted uh, even resisted blackness to this day theoretically <laughs> like and yes totally this wow. is why this is why you know people sometimes aren't reading that stuff because it's like sometimes it yeah, seems it's like, like, like the no. conversation <laughs> like, like the conversation no. hasn't evolved since the 60s like what are you doing <laughs> oh my god that's so wild uh, yeah yeah so definitely that and i guess if i can recommend one more yeah i think you said you had three <laughs> yes okay okay so okay i just wanted to make sure that i'm just like yeah so christina sharps in the way the works of fred moton who is also a fantastic fantastic poet and a fantastic literary critic and theorist is a really fantastic book called well one well I'm going to mention two books. I have one of them is called Black and Blur, 
very interesting medit- meditations on it's like his books have you can tell that he's a poet when you're reading it because his his his, his prose style is very informed by writing poetry and also by being a very knowledgeable scholar of black music mm-hmm. and so the rhythms and and structures of the black radical tradition in its musical form is very present in his text always very exhilarating to read his work very inspiring too another thing about both christine sharp and fred moten is that i've been so inspired to see how people write in ways that are actually you know critically important yet also so fucking beautiful and Mm. so Mm -hmm. and and the level of just like art in their writing exceeds the possibilities afforded to academic writing in Mm. the best way because like academic writing also really needs you know and this whole conversation about what uh knowledge is going to look like and about writing that we were having earlier this is also relevant for how we diffuse and produce our knowledge in the present because Mm -hmm. i don't know if anyone has recently read a journal article but we need access or otherwise you have to pay like a hundred dollars well yeah like i have to ask my academic friends if i want to read an article Right. Yeah. I don't have so, access to that. <laughs> so that. So obviously that, and that if you then had access to it, you read some of the stuff, and it just like seems so out of touch, so devoid of some of the more vital. Li- yeah. Exactly. Of life. Mm-hmm. Um, in in, and I think that that these writers have, in a way, shown me and also made me feel like allowed to really mm. kind of inhabit a voice that otherwise I feel it's very hard for me to kind of believe that I can assume and just I, I find that to be so important whatever thing whatever discipline that you're working in to find those voices that are actually trying to push the the limits of what that can do and that has been extremely extremely important and I guess the third writer that I wanted to talk about, this is more in the case of the, the work on the 19th century and blackness. There's Josiana Arroyo Martinez, who is also uh, a friend. Um, oh my gosh. And she's a professor at, in the Spanish department and black studies at um, UT Austin. And she wrote a book called Writing Secrecy. And it's like writing secrecy in the, in the writing, I think it's writing secrecy in the Atlantic, transatlantic. I, I mm. will, oh, yeah. wow. but it's like, but essentially she's looking, she's doing archival research. So this is just like intense, amazing, such important archival research on how Freemasonry and secret societies in the 19th century. So, so Josiana Roy Martinez's book traces the ways in which the, the, found, the founding of Masonic lodges and other similar kind of lodge homosocial spaces in the 19th century were very important locations of thinking abolitionist thought mm. in mm. and how these places created networks of through the language of ritual and through the language of these ceremonial codes inscribed abolitionist thought in the 19th century Hispanic 
francophone and lusophone, so and also in Portuguese, Caribbean. She's and another really fundamental thing that her writing teaches us is the centrality of Haiti and the Haitian mm-hmm. Revolution as the as actually the that modernity is there, like kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like mm-hmm. that this in in this slave uprising and in the consecutive kind of attempts to free Haiti as the first successful Black revolution in the world changed forever our landscape and what whatever ideas of freedom, of law, of right, of sovereignty we can think of. And if we exclude Haiti from the conversation and Haiti's importance in world history, then we are completely missing the mark on how we're thinking about some of these some of these paradigms. And we're just bound to just like produce shitty knowledge. She goes into archives, she looks at like texts from Masonic lodges in like yeah, Haiti so and cool. like in and, and Cuba and, and Puerto Rico and, and even in and and in the American South and Northeast mm. folks like she it's like a very comprehensive study of how all how Haiti essentially created this center where all these other spaces of power that had to negotiate or grapple with fact of Haiti being free. Mm. So really great books are, you know, if, if anyone's interested in that history and looking at, you know, the importance of just absolutely importance of Haiti in for world history and for even our political present. Mm-hmm. So, oh my gosh, people read all these books. I'm going to order them right now. <laughs> I, so since you gave three recommendations, I'm not going to give one because I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm reading all these books for the lit review y'all okay give me a break (laughs) i'm also out of tv shows i have nothing good to recommend i'm out of inspiration for this week but Um, you came in and saved the day with the three suggestions (laughs) wait are are you watching just you just mentioned tv shows like out of pocket but are you watching lovecraft country should i Oh well, I've I was, seen it on Twitter. It seems kind. Of, yeah, I haven't. I've just kind of. <laughs> I've seen it and haven't really engaged with it. Not for any particular reason. Just, I guess. Yeah, I'm kind of. I'm not really watching a show of substance right now. I'm just watching the reality show Indian Matchmaking. <laughs> Which, like, I, I think I saw you write about that. Really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I alternate between really heavy shows like I May Destroy You, and then I will like alternate into something lighter. So I'm in the yeah. lighter phase, and I like. I've already rec- like people have already recommended some light shows. I don't want people to think I'm a person of no substance. <laughs> Oh my god, no, not at all. Because, like, I feel like I'm so grateful for you, like, constantly talking about these shows because I'm a recent, I just recently started, like, watching, I, I think we talked about this, like, watching more more shows. So I feel like yeah, I really missed out true. on a lot of stuff. I'm kind of keeping up. I definitely finished I May Destroy You, which definitely was a lot. <laughs> it was amazing. I fucking, really like, yeah. Kill Cole is just, wow. So, so what, what, a, what an important show. Mm-hmm. And I, I finished that and then started watching Sailor Moon to kind of like... <laughs> yeah, see, exactly. Yeah, see, it's good to have yeah. those kind of rest moments to rest by in between. Yeah, so Sailor Moon is great. It also puts me to sleep. I watch it like before going to bed. Oh my... But the other day, so I watched the, the Lovecraft Country like first episode a few weeks ago and it was pretty it was like very jam-packed a lot of action it's it's also in the it's slightly in in the i mean it's not slightly it is like in a certain way like horror 
sci-fi, that oh, kind of stuff, okay. which I hadn't originally, like, I'm not usually, I don't usually watch horror, I'm not really a fan of horror movies, or, you know, I have a lot, of, I'll watch them, but, like, it's not something I'm, like, seeking out, but I think that the first episode, the just the way the show is making the horrors that we know, you know, the horrors of monsters and the undead and like all these kinds of ghosts and creatures while also grappling with anti-blackness as a horror oh. of its own. Mm. So it's it, that, okay. that I, I think is, it. I think is an interesting thing. Yeah. Second episode was a fucking mess. After I watched the second episode, I was like, wait, I don't know if I want to watch this show because it seems like the writing is really off. And then I recently uh, Well, that's watched- what I've heard that it's, it's like kind of messy, right? And it's like, oh, I don't know. It is, I don't want- yeah. There's so many well done shows. Why would I watch a messy one? Yeah, right. But that I'm acting watch- like I have like a whole queue of TV shows. I don't. I definitely have the time <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> no, but it's I like, mean, I-, I feel like I, I would rather. I don't know. It's like I, I, I just want to know: is it worth watching? Then, like, are you going to watch the third episode? I think I watched the third episode and I found it. I was very captivated by it. Again, I think that it, you know the second episode had to just really do a lot of things at once, and then in the third episode, it's kind of like slowing down and like backtracking and kind of okay. going a little bit deeper into the characters psychologies and, and, and giving us a little bit more. I haven't seen the fourth episode, so it might be trash again or it may not, but I think it's worth it. I I'll try know. it out. I'll try yeah. it out. <laughs> it's definitely not light in the sense of like, I watched it the other day and thinking that it was just like, oh, I'll just watch this before bed. It was fucking scary. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. Like, a, like a right before bed kind of thing. No. <laughs> I was afraid I was going to get nightmares from it, but I didn't. But to report. Well, Beeb, we've been talking for an hour and a half, and I don't want to oh. take I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just wanted to say thank you so much for finally coming onto the podcast, and hope this is the beginning of a longer conversation on the podcast. <gasps> oh my god, thank you so much! I'm so happy and so you know, blessed to both be on the podcast and also having you as a friend and have this conversation and just like oh. laugh for an hour and a half. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. And- oh, thanks, Steve. Okay, I'm going to stop the recording now.